0: Chapter three of the Homesteader This is a Librivox recording. All Librivox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit Librivox.org. Recording by Jeff Blanchard. The Homesteader by Oscar Majot. Epoch the second Memories N Justine McCarthy. She will not be in tomorrow, said Baptiste, handing the letter to Miss Rankin oh is that so cried miss rankin in a tone of deep disappointment as she took the letter now isn't that just too bad it is agreed baptiste i will not get to see her since i shall have to return to the west not later than two or three days he was extremely disappointed he sat down with a sigh and rested his chin in his palm looking before him thoughtfully "'I'm sure sorry, so sorry,' mused Miss Rankin abstractly. "'And you cannot possibly wait until next week?' she asked anxiously. He shook his head sadly. "'Impossible, absolutely impossible. "'It is certainly too bad. Miss Pitt was so anxious to meet you. "'And I was, too, because I think you and her would like each other. "'She's an awfully good girl and willing to help a fellow.' Just the kind of girl you need. He shifted his position now, and was absorbed in his thoughts. He had come back to his purpose. He was sorry for Miss Pitt, but he had also been sorry that Miss Gray had not answered his letter. The association with neither, true, had developed into a love affair, so would not be hard to forget. He had agreed with himself that love was to come later. He had exercised discretion. Any one of the three was a desirable mate from a practical point of view. After marriage, he was confident that they could conform sufficiently to each other's views to get along, perhaps be happy. Miss McCarthy was, in his opinion, the most intelligent of the three, as she had been to school and had graduated from college. He had confidence in education uplifting people. It made them more observing it helped them morally and with him this meant much he was very critical when it came to morals he had studied his race along this line and he was very exacting because unfortunately as a whole their standard of morals were not so high as it should be of course he understood that the same began back in the time of slavery they had not been brought up to a regard of morality in a higher sense And they were possessed with certain weaknesses. He was aware that in the days of slavery the negro, to begin with, had had, as a rule, only what he could steal. Therefore, stealing became a virtue. When accused, as he naturally was sure to be, he had resorted to the subtle art of lying. So lying became an expedient. So it had gone. Then he came down to the point of physical morality. The masters had so often the slave women lustful by disposition as concubine he had in so doing of course mixed the races Jean Baptiste knew until not more than one half of the entire race in America are without some trait of Caucasian blood there had been no defense then and for some time after there was no law that exacted punishment for a master's cohabitation with slave women so it had grown into a custom and was practised in the South in a measure still. So with freedom his race had not gotten away from these loose practices. They were given still to lustful, undependable habits, which he, at times, became very impatient with. His version was that a race could not rise higher than their morals, so in his business procedure of choosing a wife, one thing over all else was unalterable. She must be chaste, and of high morals. Aurelien McCarthy, however, she as yet appeared, from a practical standpoint, could, he estimated rightly, boast of this virtue. No doubt she was equally as high in all other perquisities. But strangely, he did not just wish to ask Miss McCarthy to become his wife. He could not understand it altogether. He was confident that no girl lived who perhaps was likely as likely to conform to his desires as she but plan do as he would that lurking aversion still remained infinitely worse it grew to a fear he sighed perceptibly and miss rankin catching the same was deeply sympathetic because she thought it was due to the disappointment he felt in realizing that he was not to see miss pitt on the morrow she placed her arm gently about his shoulders leaned her small head close to his and stroked his hair with her other hand well said he after a time and to himself i left the west to find a wife i've lived out there alone long enough i want a home love and comfort and only a wife can bring that He paused briefly in his mutterings. His face became firm. That will that had asserted itself, and made him what he was today, became utmost. He slowly let the sentiment out of him, which was at once mechanically replaced by a cold set purpose. He smiled then, not a sentimental smile, but one cold, hard, and singularly dry. Oh, by the way, Miss Rankin, he essayed, rising apparently cheerful. "'Do you happen to be acquainted with a family here by the name of McCarthy?' "'McCarthy! Yes, I think the man's a preacher.' "'A Reverend N.J. McCarthy, if I remember correctly.' She looked up at him. Her face took on an expression of defined contempt as she grunted a reply. "'Hmm, well, who doesn't know that old rascal?' "'Indeed,' he echoed, in affected surprise but in the same instant he had a feeling that he was not to hear just this. Still, he maintained his expression of surprise. "'The worst old rascal in the state of Illinois,' she pursued with equal contempt. "'Oh, really? Really, yes, positively. I cannot understand.' "'Oh, well,' she admitted vindictively. "'You won't have to inquire far to get the record of N.J. McCarthy. Lordy, no!' But now, she started with a high lightning of colour, he's got a nice family, two fine girls, Orlean and Ethel, and his wife is a good little soul, rather helpless and without the force a woman should have, but very nice, but that husband, forget him, this is, er, uh, rather unusual, don't you think? Well, it is, she said one would naturally suppose that a man with such a family of moral girls as he has would not be so. Not because he is a preacher. She paused thoughtfully. Because you know that does not count for a high morality always in our society, but N. J. McCarthy has been like he is ever since I knew him. He is a rascal of the deep water if the Lord ever made one, and such a hypocrite, there never lived. Added to it, he is the most pious old saint you ever saw, looks just as innocent as the Christ, and treats his wife like a dog. Oh, no! No, disdainfully. Well, you'd better hush, she paused again, and then, as if having reconsidered, she turned and said, I'll not say any more about him. Indeed, I don't like to discuss the man even. He is the very embodiment of rascalism, deceit, And hypocrisy now I've said enough be a good boy go out and buy me some cream and smilingly she got his hat and ushered him outside well now what do you think of that he kept repeating to himself as he went for the ice cream what do you think of that suddenly he halted and raised his hands to his head he was thinking 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 deeply reflectively His mind was going back, back, away back into his youth, his earliest youth, no! It was going, had gone back to his childhood. N. J. McCarthy, N. J. McCarthy, where did I know you? Where, where, where? His head was throbbing. His brain was struggling with something that happened a long time before. A saloon was just to his left and into it he turned. He wanted to think, but he didn't want to think too fast. He took a glass of beer. It was late September, but rather warm, and when the cold beverage struck his throat, his mind went back into its yesterdays. It had happened in the extremely southern portion of the state, in that part commonly referred to as Egypt, where he then lived. He recalled the incident as it occurred about twenty years before, for he was just five years of age at the time. His mother's baby boy, they called him, because he was the youngest of four boys in a large family of children. It was a day in the autumn. He was sure of this, because his older brothers had been hunting. They had caught several rabbits and shot a few partridges. He had been allowed to follow for the first time. And had carried the game how distinctly it came back to him now he had picked the feathers from the quail and had held the rabbits while his brothers skinned them and later they had placed the game in cold water from their deep well and had thereupon placed the pan holding the same upon the roof of the summer kitchen and that night the frost had come and when morning was again The ice-cold water had drawn the blood from the meat of the game, and the same was clear and white. Now, young man, his mother said to him the following morning, you will get into clean clothes and stay clean. Do you understand? Yes, Mama, I understand, he answered. But Mama, why? he inquired. Jean-Baptiste had always asked such questions, and for his doing so his mother had always rebuked him you will ask the questions my son she said raising his child body in her arms and kissing him fondly but i don't mind telling you she stood him on the ground then and pointed to him with her forefinger because we are going to have company from town big people the preachers lots of them so little boys should be good and clean and be scarce when the preachers are around they are big men, with no time or care to waste with little boys. Mum, he had chimed. And, why, Mamma, do the preachers have no time for little boys? Were they not little boys once themselves? Now, Jean, she had admonished him thereupon, You are entirely too inquisitive for a little boy. There will be other company also, teachers, and Mrs. Winston. Do you understand? So be good with that she went about her dinner cooking the rabbits and the quail that had been brought home the day before it had seemed an age before in their spring wagon followed by the lumber wagon the dignitaries of the occasion wheeled into the yard he could not recall now how many preachers there were except that there were many he was in the way he recalled however because unlike his other brothers he was not bashful But the preachers did not seem to see him, they were all large and tall and stout, he could well remember, but the teachers took notice of him, one had caught him up fondly, kissed him, and thereupon carried him into the house in her arms, she talked with him, and he with her, and he could well recall that she listened intently to all he told her regarding his adventures of the day before, in the big woods that was at their back how beautiful and sweet he had thought she was when she smiled she showed a golden tooth something new to him and he did not understand except that it was different from anything he had ever seen before after a long time he thought dinner was called and as was the custom he was expected to wait he had very often tried to reason with his mother that he could sit at the corner of the table in a high chair and eat out of a saucer. He had promised always to be good, just as good as he could be. And he would not talk, but his mother would not trust him, and it was understood that he should wait. At the call of dinner, he slid from the teacher's lap upon the floor, and went outside. He peeped through the window, from where he stood on a block. He saw them eat, and eat, and eat. He saw the quail the boys had shot disappear, one after another, into the mouths of the big preachers, and since he had counted, and knew how many quail there were, he had watched with a growing fear. Will they not leave one? he cried. At last, when he could endure it no longer, he ran into the house, walked into the dining room unseen, and stood looking on. Now the teacher who had the golden tooth Happened to turn and espy him, and thereupon she cried, Oh, there is my little man, and I know he is hungry. Where did you go, sweet one? Come now, quick to me. Whereupon she held out loving arms into which he went, and he had great difficulty in keeping back his tears. But he was hungry, and he had seen the last quail taken from the plate by a preacher who had previously taken two. Upon her knee she had sat him, and he looked up into all the faces about. He then looked down into her plate, and saw a half of quail. His anxious eyes found hers, and then went back to the plate, and the half of quail thereon. That is for you, sweetness, she cried, and began to take from the table other good things, while he fell to eating, feeding his mouth with both hands, for he was never before so hungry. After a few moments, he happened to lift his eyes from the plate. Just to the side of his beloved teacher, he observed a large, tall, and stout preacher. He wore a jet-black suit, and round his throat a clerical vest fit closely, while around his neck he wore a white collar, hind part before. The preacher's eyes had found Jean's, and he gave a start. The eyes of the other were upon him, and they were angry eyes. He paused in his eats, and gazed not understanding, into the eyes that were upon him. Then suddenly he recalled that he had observed that the preacher had been smiling upon the teacher. He had laughed and joked, and said many things that little Jean had not understood. As far as he could see, it appeared as if the teacher had not wished it, but the flirtation had been kept up. At last in his child mind he had understood. His crawling upon the teacher's lap had spoiled it all. The preacher was angry, therefore the expression in his eyes. From across the table his mother stood observing him. She seemed not to know what to say or do, for it had always been so very hard to keep this one out of grown people's way. So she continued to stand hesitantly. Didn't your mother say that you were to wait? growled the preacher, and his face was darker by the anger that was in it. This frightened John. He could find no answer in the moment to such words. His little eyes had then sought those of the teachers, who in reply drew him closer to her. "Why, reverend," she cried amazed, "he's a little boy, a nice child, and hungry." Whereupon she caressed him again, He was pacified then, and his eyes held some fire when he found the preachers again. The others, too, had grown more evil. The preacher's lips parted. He leaned slightly forward, as he said lowly, angrily, You're an impudent, ill-mannered little boy, and you need a spanking. Then suddenly the child grew strangely angry. He couldn't understand. Perhaps it was because he had helped secure the quail all of which the preachers were eating and felt that in view of this he was entitled to a piece of one. he could not understand afterwards how he had said it but he extended his little face forward close to the preachers as he poured i ain't no impudent little boy either i went to hunt with my brothers yesterday and i carried all the game and now you're gonna eat it all and leave me none when i'm hungry you're a mean man and make me mad as he spoke everything seemed to grow dark around him he recalled that he was suddenly snatched from the teacher's lap and carried to the summer kitchen which was all closed and dark inside he recalled that switches were there and that soon after he felt them as a rule he cried and begged before he was ever touched but strangely then he never cried and he never begged he just kept his mouth shut tightly and had borne all the pain inflicted by his mother, and she had punished him longer than she had ever done before. Perhaps it was because she felt she had to make him cry, felt that he must cry, else he had not repented. After a time he felt terribly dazed, became sleepy, and gradually fell into a slumber, while the blows continued to fall. How long he slept he could not remember, but gradually he came out of it. There were no more blows then yet his little body felt sore all over when he looked up for he was lying on his back in the summer kitchen his mother sat near and was crying and wiping the tears with her apron while over him bent the teacher and she was crying also and as the tears had fallen unchecked upon his face he had heard the teacher saying it's a shame an awful shame the poor poor little fellow he was hungry and had helped to get the game and to be punished so severely, because he wanted to eat, is a shame. Oh, Mrs. Baptiste, you must pray to your God for forgiveness. And his mother had cried more than ever then. Presently he heard a heavy footfall, and peeped upwards to see his father standing over him. His father was fair of complexion, and unlike his mother, never said much, and was not commonly emotional. But when he was angry, he was terrible, and he was angry now. His blue eyes shone like fire. What is this, Bella? he cried in a terrible voice. You've killed my boy about that D.N. preacher. His father stooped and looked closely into his face. In fear, he had opened his eyes. Jean, he heard his father breathe. God, but it's a blessing you are alive, or there would be a dead preacher in that house. Oh, fawn! His mother cried and fell on him, weeping. The teacher joined in to pacify him, and in that moment, Jean was forgotten. Stiffly, he had slipped from the room and had gone around near the kitchen step of the big house to a place where the dogs had their bed. Here he kept a heavy green stick, a short club. He passed before the door and observed the preacher still sitting at the table, talking with Mrs. Winston he glared at him a moment and his little eyes narrowed to mere slits then he thought of something else it was mose allen mose allen a hermit who lived in the woods it was miles in his mind to where mose lived through heavy forest and timber but he was going there he was going there to stay with old mose and live in the woods he had done nothing wrong yet had been severely punished before this He had thought several times that when he became a man, he would like to be a preacher, a big preacher, and be admired. But now, never, he would go to old Moe's Allen's, live in the woods, and hate preachers forever. Later, deep into the forest he plodded, deeper, deeper, until all about him he was surrounded with overgrowth, but resolutely he struggled onward. He crossed a branch presently, and knew where he was. The branch divided their land with Eppenkamp's, the German. From there the forest grew deeper, the trees larger, and the underbrush more tangled. But he was going to Mose Allen, and remembered that that was the way. He grasped his green club tighter, and felt like a hunter in the bear stories. His big brothers had read to him. He crossed a rise between the branch and the creek, where the water flowed deeply, and where they always went fishing he paused upon reaching the creek for there a foot-log lay for the first time he experienced a slight fear he didn't like foot-logs and had never crossed one alone he had always been carried across by his brothers but his brothers were not near and he was running away so he took courage and approached the treacherous bridge he looked down at the whirling waters below with some awe but finally with a grimace He set his foot on the slick trunk of the fallen tree and started across he recalled then that if one looked straight ahead and not down at the water it was easy but his mind was so much on the waters below he kept his eyes elsewhere with great effort and finally reached the middle now it seemed that he could not go one step further unless he saw what was below him he hesitated closed his eyes, and thought of the whipping he had received, and the preacher he hated, opened them, and with calm determination, born of anger, crossed safely to the other side. He sighed long and deep when he reached the other side. He looked back at the muddy waters, whirling below, and with another sigh plunged into the forest again, and on toward Mose allens. He gained the other side of the forest in due time and came into the clearing. A cornfield was between him and another forest, and almost to the other side of this Mose Allen lived. The sun was getting low, and the large oaks behind him cast great shadows that stretched before him and far out into the cornfield. He thought of ghosts and hurried on. He must reach Mose Allen's before night, that was sure. It was a long way he thought when he reached the other side and the forest before him appeared ominous he was inclined to be frightened but when he looked toward the west and home he saw that the sun had sunk and he plunged grimly again into the deep woodland before him now the people of the neighborhood had made complaints and it was common talk about the country that chickens and young pigs and calves had been attacked and destroyed by something evil in the forests. At night this evil spirit had stolen out and ravaged the stock and the chickens. Accordingly, those interested had planned a hunt for what was thought to be a catamount. It was not until he had gone deeply into the woods and darkness was everywhere about him that he remembered the catamount he stopped and tried to pick the briars out of his bleeding hands and as he did so he heard a terrible cry he went cold with fear he hardly dared breathe and crouched in a hole he had found where only his shoulders and head were exposed he awaited with abated breath for some minutes and was about to venture out when again the night air and darkness was rent by the terrible cry he crouched deeper into the hole and trembled for the noise was drawing nearer on and on it came he thought of a thousand things in one minute and again he heard the cry it was very near now and he could hear the crunch of the animals feet upon the dry leaves and still on and on it came presently it was so close that he could see it the body of the beast became dimly outlined before him and he could see the eyes plainly as it swung its head back and forth and its red eyes shone like coals of fire again the varmint rent the night air with its yell as it espied its prey crouching in the hole by watching the eyes he observed the head sink lower and lower until it almost touched the earth and thereupon he became suddenly calm and apprehensive he held his breath and met it calmly face to face His club was drawn. His eyes were keen and intense. He waited. Suddenly the air was rent with another death-rendering cry, and the beast sprung. It had reckoned well, but so had he. He had, moreover, struck direct. The blow caught the beast on the point of its nose, and muffled and spoiled its directed spring he quickly came out of the hole and then before the animal could get out of his reach he struck it again with such force at the back of the head that the beast was stunned again and again he struck until the head was like a bag of bones when his strength was gone and all was quiet he became conscious of a drowsiness he sank down and laid his head upon the body of the dead animal and fell into a deep sleep and there they found him during the early hours of the morning, and took him and the dead catamount home. Another beer, Captain, he heard from the bartender. He quickly stood erect, and gazed about in some confusion. Yes, he replied, throwing a coin upon the bar. He drank the beer quickly, went out, bought Miss Rankin the ice cream, and after delivering it to her, went outside again, and up State Street. He was overcome with memories, was Jean-Baptiste. He had a task to accomplish. He was going to Vernon Avenue, where Miss McCarthy lived, to ask her to become his wife. And the preacher, who had been the cause of his severe punishment twenty years before, was her father, the Reverend N. J. McCarthy. End of Chapter 3 Epoch the Second. Memories N. Justine McCarthy